0: Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us back here on Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm David Golay, the bike editor at Blister and host of the show, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So, last time Evan Turpin of Contra Bikes was on the show, he had a pretty well-refined prototype of his MC Enduro bike, but was polishing up some of the last details before heading off to production And this time around, Evan's back to chat about a whole lot of stuff that's happened since then, including a lot of the refinement that it's taken to get the MC ready to go to production, the challenges associated with starting production of a new bike model, especially as a smaller company doing all of their fabrication right here in the U.S., and also the fact that he's got the Beyond Racing team of Anna Newkirk and Abby Hoagie racing on some prototype DH bikes as well, which we also had Anna and Abby on the show a little while back. So check out that episode as well. There's a link in the show notes. So this is a pretty interesting conversation, and Evan does a very good job of peeling back the curtain on what it takes to get a nearly complete prototype bike over the finish line as far as production readiness goes and talks really well about just how much the little details and that final bit of refinement takes to get really dialed and well i think he's done quite a good job been testing the mc for a while now and getting along with it very very well got a flash review up on the site and full review to come in a bit here so more on that to come but it's been a very cool project to follow along with and the end result is rather impressive as well so hope you enjoy it it's been fun getting to peel back the curtain with evan here and think you'll learn a lot from it so let's get right to it this is evan turpin of contra bikes well evan great to sit down and chat as always and we've already been going for a bit off mic here but uh looking forward to kind of getting a bit of an update on what's going on over at contra and hear a bit about this saga of moving to production from where you're at last time we were on because we would kind of had a prototype of the nearly production ready bike going at that point and but lots happened since then so uh good to chat with you and looking forward to hearing all about it how are you doing Yeah,
1: I'm stoked to be here. Definitely a lot has happened since we last talked, for sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so we, you know, don't need to run down everything. Uh, Folks should go listen to our prior episode that we'll link to for some of the background here, but just real quick for folks who perhaps aren't as fully versed in what's going on over there. Can you just give the quick version of what's up with Contra bikes and what the MC is?
1: Yeah, for sure. So Contra Bikes, uh, it was kind of born out of my frustration uh, working as a bike mechanic. <laughs> and uh, it's it's a project that's taken me about three years to finally get to fruition. But um, it the bike that I ended up making, um, it went through a few iterations, but the bike that I make is a virtual high pivot um, chromoly steel, enduro oriented bike. Um, or I mean, you could even use it as a bike park bike. It actually works well for that. Um, so the high pivot, uh, is something that I came, uh, about through testing and I really liked and wanted to, uh, take all the advantages of a high pivot bike, which is carrying speed through rough and the stability, um, and eliminate a lot of the weak uh a lot of the weaknesses and things i didn't like so that was my focus and i feel like i for a first go at starting a bike company and and launching a bike i think i achieved that um but yeah still have a long ways to go for sure (laughs)
0: yeah well and again got a first look on the bike up on the site i've been testing it we'll have four of you out in a little bit it's actually sitting over my shoulder right there you can see a tiny bit of it right now but uh we'll get into some of that stuff in a little while but i think one of the things that i'm excited to chat about here is just sort of getting more of your story of kind of what it takes to actually get a company off the ground and moving from that phase that you were at last time we spoke on the podcast of having a design and a prototype bike built to getting it sufficiently refined and production ready and actually ramping up and producing and selling bikes, which you have now kind of gotten to that point, but there's a lot that goes into that. And uh, I guess let you sort of pick where we start with this, but kind of when you were at that point, you're know, in a half ish ago of having a mostly ready, but, still few little details to refine level prototype to finishing it out the door and really ramping up to production what was that whole process like and kind of what maybe most surprised you about what it took to get there
1: well i'd say i mean to be honest it's kind of like there's no hard and fast rule of like how to start a bike company um other the only rule is is to start with more money than you think you need um but i will say that uh to from that point where we had where i had a prototype on display and, and had tested a prior prototype before that and uh basically confirmed the way that i wanted it to ride um it was more um Adding the features that I wanted to have. So at the time, I was using just Paragon Machine Works um, dropouts. They're kind of off the shelf dropouts uh, for frame builders. They're made uh, up near San Francisco, but they're super affordable. You know, they're like 18, 20 bucks for a pair of them. And uh, they're a good dropout, but they don't work with the SRAM Universal Derailleur Hanger standard. And I knew that there were going to be products coming. Um, and then that, that was the direction that the industry was going. And I, I didn't really want to, you know, the whole purpose of the bike is to, to last quite long. And, and um, you can't entirely future proof a bike, but try not to have anything that's going to be out of date immediately as soon as you launch the bike. So for me, a huge focus was getting uh, UDH dropout uh, designed and, and built. Um, another thing that I was focusing on was I wasn't happy with standard IS mount, uh, for the rear disc brake. I wanted to do a post mount and I wanted to do a direct post mount, um, either 200 millimeter or 203. And there wasn't anything just readily available that could be used for that, at least not optimized. Um, and then there were a few other things that I looked at, um, also just doing more in-depth FEA, uh, to make sure that the bike could actually handle the, the stresses that I wanted it to. Um, so I guess I could start with the dropouts cause that was probably the biggest source of frustration, um, and took the most amount of time. And the, for people that don't know, well, I think most people will know now, why we have UDH. Um, Besides being a derailleur hanger standard, it's the way to mount, you know, eagle transmission. Um, So that dropout has very specific requirements for uh, its tolerance and its size and clearances. And so doing that in steel is actually quite, well, I shouldn't say it's difficult. It's not difficult to make a dropout in steel that hits those things. It's difficult to make a dropout in steel that hits all those requirements. Is strong and is light. And so I pushed really hard to design a dropout that I thought achieved all those things. It was I thought it was gonna be strong. I thought it was I mean it definitely was light and it had all the clearances and it's it's beautiful dropout, or at least I think it was one of, you know, something I spent so long on. Um but at the time, I had been using Creo Parametric 3D design software to design it, and I didn't have access to finite element analysis. Speak be- or no, sorry, I didn't. I wasn't using Creo. I was using Onshape, and I didn't have access to finite element analysis, which I had prior in Creo Parametric. And so, what happened is I designed this dropout and. Based it kind of off of other dropout designs that I'd seen as far as wall thicknesses and stuff, and was like, Oh, yeah, this is going to be good, but I do need to do some FEA, and was trying to look into packages for that. And it's quite expensive, you know, to get a seat for Creo Parametric that would have uh, FEA in it, it would cost somewhere around five to $5,500. And I just, you know, didn't have a bunch of extra money laying around to, to pay for that just to confirm that one design. And, uh, ultimately we just pulled the trigger on making the dropouts. Cause I was trying to move forwards with production, um, got, you know, 40 sets of dropouts made. Um, and then through a change of events, uh, on shape, basically released, uh, an FEA package, like included in their, um, 3D design software and I started using it and did a test, uh, basically like a torsion test on the back end of the bike. And I had noticed a hotspot that would make it not pass the standards that I wanted it to uh, a couple hotspots on the dropout. And that was just from making it so light. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe this, uh, FEA program isn't that accurate because it's like a new one that they just released So I actually contacted Dan Roberts, um, who has his own, um, engineering, bicycle frame engineering and stuff. And he does, you know, he used to do work for, I think it was Scott and now he works for, does a lot of stuff for raw and he's done some stuff with Nico Malali on his frameworks program. And so I had him, I paid him to actually run like the same tests I was doing And it just confirmed the results. And so I was like, great. Now I've spent $5,000 on these dropouts because they're, you know, made here, quite expensive, and I can't use them. And I have to redesign everything. And so that um, was a major setback. And it's funny that it was about $5,000, which is how much it would have cost me at the time to purchase FEA. (laughs) So, yeah, that was a major setback, but I was able to learn from that, and, and I kind of learned that, you know, don't push go on the production thing until you've fully vetted it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, after that, a big focus was the rear brake mount, and that took a lot longer um, than I expected, um, mostly because I also wanted it to pass uh, a very high level of fatigue, and um, I was basing all my tests off the EFBE labs um, test standard for downhill certification. Um, But even if you're not doing downhill certification, it still has that brake fatigue test. And um, that was something that probably took me maybe over a month just to come up with a a really good brake design that um, achieved the aesthetics, but also like a, a decent weight and was able to take, uh, it should be able to take really, really good, um, or it should have a high level of fatigue resistance in that, you know, you could, you shouldn't see a failure anywhere near the brake mount, um, from the brake forces going into it. Um, so that took a really long time that delayed things further. Um, there was a lot of work around head tube gusseting to figure out, a really good solution there because forks keep getting longer and longer. Um and I wanted the bike to be able to work with a long travel triple clamp if somebody wanted, but even more so like the the Zebs, you know, they go up to 190 and I you know it gets really hard to make a bike pass with a super long axle-to-crown fork cuz if you think about it it's basically just a long lever arm. So all the forces get concentrated and especially on a smaller frame size where you have a, a smaller head tube and the load is distributed so close um, to each other, like between your headset cups, it uh, becomes just really hard to make it pass. So there was a lot of work there to make sure the way that I was gusseting that was going to be really durable and and strong. So yeah, just massive amounts of work on that. Um, a bunch of work on the, the way the idler is mounted to the frame, um, bumping up from a six M six bolt. So a six millimeter diameter bolt to a eight millimeter diameter bolt. And that's, that's not actually for holding the idler. It's for just the anchoring point that takes the kind of the torque coming from the bracket um, so doing that and 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 changing that design, that's another area where it should go forever. Like you won't, you you theoretically just won't be able to break that throughout the life of the bike. So that was good because the M6 setup wouldn't have held up super long term. Even though with that said, we've been riding the old prototypes still with the small M6 bolt with no problems. So if anything, the bike is, uh, I've definitely gone down the route of like over engineering it to be as strong as, as it could be. Um, but also trying to keep in mind like the ride characteristics and not having the thing be an absolute tank. So yeah, I I would say, um, the biggest thing is, is when I kind of launched the bike, you know, I, I kind of, launched it and started taking orders before everything had been fully 100% baked. And uh, I mean, it was was good because there was a lot of excitement around it, but it put a lot of increased pressure on myself to get things done. And I didn't want to put it out there with it being half-baked. So ultimately, I would say if I was to do it over again, I would probably... Want to have waited probably another year until I had the full, you know, this is the pre-production bike. Um, But you also have to balance like how much money do you have, you know, how much investment do you have to work with? Because if you go too long without taking any money in, then it's all pointless anyway. You, You you're out of business and you can't you can't deliver a bike or it's just a dream in your head now at that point. So, so yeah, it was, um, jumping on the, you know, the momentum of the pink bike review, their field test thing, um, felt like the right thing to do at the time, but it was definitely faster. It was, it was sooner than I would have liked it to have been.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky thing to balance, right? You, like you said, you want to start getting people excited about what you're doing and bringing in some money to fund the project and keep things rolling, but not get too far ahead of yourself and overcommit either. So, you know, seems like you've made some good headway on that and, you know, production bikes are rolling out. So I guess along those lines, um, once you have had some of those design details nailed down, you know, you figured out the dropout and the brake mount as you just laid out there what was the ramp up into actually getting serial production going? Like once you had the design finalized and needed to just start building the things.
1: Well, a lot of it, obviously there's a lot of machine parts on my bike. It's a, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but there's at least, well, there's quite a few parts, especially if you include all the pivot hardware that's custom built for the frame. Um, the pivot housings, everything, all the laser cut parts. So it was basically making sure that nothing was falling through the cracks um, as far as those parts being ordered, sent out to to places to be made. And most of the parts were made um, here in town at, uh, in well, actually in Capitola, which is near me. It's probably a 10 minute drive. And uh, Dave Mather, Mather Machining, he did all the prototype stuff for me, uh, in the first two iterations of the bike. And I kept him on board for production cause he, uh, was easy to work with and is good at what he does. So, um, a lot of those parts were ordered there. And then, uh, I was talking a lot with Paragon machine works about, you know, getting quotes back and forth for the pivot hardware. Cause they do a lot of lathe, lathe parts. Um, they also did the like the pivot housings. So what gets welded onto the, the swing arm that attaches it to the linkages. Um, so they did those. Um, they also did the rear brake mount and that was a bit of back and forth. Um, mostly with, uh, there were a few little issues. They, they, they made some mistakes on the first brake mounts and they obviously aren't going to just be like, Hey, here you go. Here's your parts. And they're messed up. they, they, uh, made the appropriate changes and sent me out, uh, the correct brake mounts. Um, so that, that also was something that (laughs) delayed things further is just, if there's a a mistake with a machine part, then you obviously have to, you can't just put that onto the bike. (laughs) I don't think anybody wants a $4,500 bike with a, a brake mount. That's not done right. Um, so pulling the trigger on all those parts, but also, sourcing all of the other things like you know I, I make my own chain guide lower chain guide and upper chain guide for the bike um, and it relies on using an MRP bash uh, off of their AMG guide um, and then it also uses Shimano uh, actually an XT uh, derailleur pulley wheel off of the 12-speed derailleur And then some 3D printed parts. So there's 3D printed nylon 11 little um, housing that holds the derailleur uh, pulley wheel to the lower chain guide. Um, There's the upper chain guide that has uh, the MRP AMG upper guide. Um, And then there's also this, basically kind of it's like an STFU sort of, but. It's just 3D printed and specific to the bike, and and it basically helps to keep the chain from going into the tire. And so, like all these things, I had to not only design, but or refine, but also source. So, um, yeah, there's a lot. If you saw the list of how many actual individual parts go into one uh, into my bike specifically, it's a lot. (laughs) And um, making sure you have, you know, forty to fifty sets of these parts ready to go, um, took a, took a long time and a lot of money to, to source all that stuff. Um, especially because with something like those Shimano derailleur pulley wheels, they just weren't in stock. So, and that's what I had designed it around. So I had to order them at like full retail through the internet and pay tax on it, which isn't, if anybody starting a business, uh, you know, people would know that you you have basically a resale license and when you buy any components that are going into your bike you don't pay tax on it and the reason why you don't pay tax on it is because when you sell the bike you you charge sales tax so it doesn't get doubly taxed so ordering something at full retail with tax is not great financially um for your business but it was necessary in order to make sure i had chain guides that were functional for customers. Um, so yeah, after ordering as many of those parts, you know, they, they don't just all come at once exactly when you want them. There's, there's always everything trickles in at different times. Um, and then on top of that, I was really focused on creating my own tubing bender. I don't know. I don't know if I had, I definitely didn't have that made at the time, uh, when we last talked, and so that was something that took a very long time. You know, I think I severely underestimated how long I thought it would take to to do a mandrel tubing bender, which is basically a, a tubing bender that can do tighter radiuses with a higher quality of bend because it has an internal support uh, where it's being bent. Uh, basically, this like b- bullet shaped thing inside the tube. So it gets bent kind of. Gets drawn around that and and creates a really nice bend. And I think I remember telling my wife that, uh, oh yeah, this should just take me like a couple of weeks to design and make this thing. And I think it ended up being a couple of months before it was done because it's it's it was such a complex thing for me. You know, I'd never I'm not a tube bending engineer. So I just was doing as much research as I can and designing this thing in the way that I thought was the most simple and attainable to to manufacture and and use. And um, yeah, then had to pull the trigger on some expensive, you know, CNC machine dies uh, to create the bends. And and then a big thing was testing it and seeing if it would achieve what I had set out to have it do. And uh, it had issues right away. And some of the issues were just, I had uh, underestimated how big of a clamping surface area you need to hold a tube and and be able to bend it with a really high load. Like I didn't, I don't know how to do FEA on a tubing bender. So I made these clamps that I thought were going to be great, and instead they would they would kink the tube. So I had to redesign these clamps, and I had to make some additional clamps because now it no longer worked with my design. Like I had to make a special clamp for. There's an S bend on the chain stays where you have two bends very close to each other. They're they're 15 millimeters between the bends, and originally I had a 15 millimeter clamp, um, so that it could fit between it and you could just flip flop it. But the problem is you can't, you can't put that amount of load into the tube and only clamping it with 15 millimeters of, uh, width on your clamp. It basically would just kink and destroy the tube and, and it wasn't stiff enough even just to take the load. So that took a long time to get that up and running. And then once that was up and running, then I would run into issues with the the way that I was using to drive the the bend, which was this threaded threaded rod. So you'd run a kind of like the Cobra tubing bender, which uses a threaded rod and you use like a, a wireless drill and you uh, spin it and it, you know, you could do a hydraulic setup, but I thought this was the simplest way to control it. And I basically would just run into issues with the threads like blowing out over time, and it no longer working. And so it took a long time to sort that out. It ended up being that instead of using a stainless steel rod, the threaded rod, I ended up using like a, I can't remember if it was a grade 8.8, but something much harder, like regular steel, not stainless steel. And then the other issue I had was that the threaded housing was was too long. I thought, oh, this long threaded housing is going to distribute the loads better. But what actually happened is there was a discrepancy between the the thread pitch of the tap versus what the actual rod was. So if you have a really long section of threaded, threaded housing, they actually are fighting, it's binding and fighting the threads. So the solution seems totally counterintuitive, but I ended up basically boring out half of that housing. So there were only half as many threads and now it's working totally fine. <laughs> so it's, it was just like insane getting it to that point, building the tooling. And then there was even more tooling that I ended up building. That's just specific to specific operations. Um, and there's a whole bunch more tooling that I could build to make things easier and more efficient. But at a certain point you just have to make the bikes and you can't, just keep building tooling. Cause yeah, it'll just take too long. So, um, yeah, building, building tooling was huge. Getting all those, you know, sourcing, making sure you're sourcing all the, the, the tubing. Um, I ended up kind of in, uh, in the past, I would just order, you know, standard chromoly tubing from like McMaster. Uh, and it's quite expensive through them. So I ended up going like direct to, uh, I believe it's like TW Metals, which is, they have a location down in Southern California and you could just order like 50, like six foot long, you know, pieces of tubing. And it was way cheaper. And uh, you could also get more information you know, that was a, a big thing was being able to get the information of where it was coming from. And through practice, I've found that for my standard chromoly tubes, the at least what seems to be the best quality uh, when I'm doing tubing bending or cutting or welding or whatever uh, has been these tubes from Germany. Um, the brand's called Bentler. So anybody trying to make chromoly bikes... Home, homemade bikes or whatever, can look into that brand. And I've been really happy with their tubing. Um, the quality just seems like the tolerances are really good. And uh, I'm super happy that the, through luck, the, you know, 50 gigant, you know, six foot long tubes are that brand. <laughs> um, but yeah, then also you got to source bottom brackets, head tubes, uh, all that. Cable, cable guides are crazy expensive if you order them from Paragon, which they make really nice cable guides, but they're incredibly expensive. Like my cost on just the cable guides that go on the bike is around $80 and you could easily use an alternative that comes from Taiwan or China and they would probably cost you $12 total, um, but they don't work as good for for my design or, or, you know, what I, how I want the cable to be held. So, um, yeah, just all those little things you got to source out. And then on top of that, figuring out the finishing, because all of the bikes that were prototypes, you know, the very, very first prototype was completely raw and I just oiled it because I was, I don't know, at the time, <laughs> at the time, maybe I was a little terrified of getting it powder coated and I really wanted to ride it. So, um, I rode that bike raw. And then the second bike, I did get powder coated, um, but didn't really know what I was doing. So it took, you know, nearly a day or more just to scrape all the powder coat out of areas that you didn't want it to be. And then the third bike, which was on display at sea otter that had a color shifting paint job and looked really good. That was just wet painted and that wasn't durable. So I had to figure out a good setup for powder coating. And uh, that's been a, it kind of continues to be a frustration. Um, but it, yeah, there's some very frustrating things around around powder coating. So that's something to also, if somebody's trying to start a bike company, really figure out uh, how you're going to paint and finish the bikes so that it is at a very high quality Um, something your customer will be happy with, um, especially if they're paying so much for it. So, yeah, I mean, I could get into the issues that I had with that. If, if, if you want to know, um, there's some funny stuff in there. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before too, but I know that's been, uh, quite a headache. And I mean, I think a lot of this just kind of what you're describing here in whole sort of illustrates a lot of something that we talked about last episode while back. Like I think I said that, you know, I used to work as a mechanical engineer. I have got some kind of half baked cab designs of bikes that I have toyed around with over the years and thought about building a little bit, but in no small part, it's just been that I have been sort of, intimidated by the idea of actually trying to build one of the things because i sort of had enough background experience to know how like not specifically what things were going to be hard necessarily exactly but just that all of these little things end up taking way more time and effort than it sort of seems like they should at first blush and um you know particularly the tubing bender i am just very impressed that you've managed to build one yourself and get that up and running well, because I've got some experience doing bent steel tubes in my former engineering days. And, uh, it's a pain in the ass. It's just so much more finicky and complicated than it sort of seems like it should be. If you kind of haven't immersed yourself in it a little bit and, uh, you know, there are like, there are companies whose whole business is specializing in making custom bend dives for whatever application that you might have. And you come to them and say like, you know, I'm trying to bend this too, but this radius, whatever. And they've just got decades of experience building those little things. And that's what they do as a, a whole business. And figuring that out yourself amongst all this other stuff is, I am sure, a big lift. And, um pretty cool that you pulled that off but i'm also just interested to hear sort of as you've you talked about kind of this balance of like building some tooling to make things more efficient but at some point needing to just move forward and not attempt to fully optimize every little thing in terms of manufacturing process and streamlining everything because you just got to move forward at some point and tell us a bit about kind of what lessons you learned from going through all that and figuring out where you could stand to speed things up with better tooling and how you've thought about where to invest effort and money into building stuff like that versus just still kind of doing things a little bit more manually.
1: Yeah. So I think over time through making the frames, like actually producing them in larger numbers than just one-offs, um, anytime I would run into some sort of issue where, like, I'm having difficulty repeating, um, a miter, uh, like specifically on where the where the down tube comes in is is mitered to the bottom bracket on a normal like straight down tube bike, that would be quite easy to do because you have a a straight tube that you can clamp and you can reference, you know, you can reference the edge if you're trying to be tangent to that with your miter. And it's pretty easy to do. But I was finding that with my bike design, because I have a bent down tube that the the bottom bracket basically is mitered on the bend. So it's it's on a curve where you're, where you're cutting it. But it's also um, the bottom bracket shell is a smaller diameter than the diameter of the down tube. So I wanted that to land tangent to the bottom so that it, you could weld it. Um, cleanly, but also I, I wanted to, well, originally I was basically crimping down the end of the down tube to make it meet the diameter of the bottom bracket shell. And this was on just um, this was actually on the race team bikes that I made that we can we can talk about later. Um, and the, the issue with that is you' you're, you know you're crimping this tube down so you're distorting it. Um, then you need to figure out exactly where you, well, you have to keep it in phase, which means you have to keep it, um, so it's not like twisted to the side cause you have a bend in it and then locating that hole for the, basically to, to weld your bottom bracket on, um, was, was really difficult because you also have to take into account the way that the main pivot on my bike mounts, which is two plates that mount. Uh, well, they get welded to the top of the down tube, um, so those two locations are kind of. Uh, well, that location is 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 fixed. You can't move the pivot to compensate, and you need it to land on the head tube at the correct position as well. Um, so there's like these three things that add up to making it really difficult to uh, repeatably align the down tube perfectly and miter it perfectly. And so that was one area where I ended up creating a little, finally, after beating my head against the wall, like, you know, six or seven times trying to make bikes, uh, in a very painful way. Um, I ended up making just a little bracket that bolted to my jig that would allow me to just basically slide the tube in, um, butt it up against the the pivot plates, and then also at the same time, hold it up at the head tube, like at the appropriate position. And then it literally, it sounds kind of funny, but I literally just have a little hole in this bracket that I then use a Sharpie. It fits perfectly. And it just creates a little dot on the, on the down tube. And that dot is located accurately enough to repeatedly get my bottom bracket mitre now. And it's just kind of the only way I could figure out how to do it. Cause, um, you could create a very expensive fixture that's CNC machined or, or something that, you know, you clamp the tube in, into the mill and you could, you know, go X and Y over and it'll be perfect. But, um, yeah, I just didn't. I didn't go down that route from the beginning because I, I didn't think it was going to be that much of a problem. Um, so this is kind of like a halfway where you know this tool took me probably half of a day to make, and now it means that I can repeatably get that miter exactly where I want it, and uh, my down tube can can land uh, where I want it to, which is really important because. You, you want it to land correctly on the head tube for clearances for the crown, um, but also just the structure of it. Cause that's what you've designed uh, and done your FEA simulation on. So if you end up having it land somewhere else um, it, it's not exactly as you've designed it. Um, you know, there's, there's other tools that I would like to make in the future um, and haven't made yet. Uh, you know, the the swing arms uh, I've gotten a lot faster at mitering those I've just kind of had some talks with John Coletti at Coletti Cycles and he was like well what if you mitered it this way first and then or you know you do the more difficult miter first and then you creep up on the the opposite side the the easier miter um, second because I was doing it the other way around I was doing the easiest miter first. And then trying to do this complex miter um, second. And so, and it was just way more difficult to uh, make adjustments and continue to take like, you know, 5, 10, 15 thousandths of an inch off of this tube every time having to fixture it in a complex way. So that was something that made it where, you know, making a swing arm for me used to take like, I don't know, at least a whole day or two because I was just, you know, I'd end up scrapping something, making a mistake. And now I've made swing arms, at least not, not doing all the tubing bending, but if I have all the tubes bent, I could fully miter a swing arm, uh, in about three to three and a half hours, which is a lot faster now. So it's a lot less of a headache. And actually the front triangles now have been, have been the thing that takes me the longest, um, And so that's maybe somewhere where I need to focus on is simplifying, uh, or creating some tooling for the front triangle, uh, to try to bring it more in line with how the rear triangle is now where I can, you know, get, get it done in a reasonable amount of time. And ideally in the future, you know, I could even create tooling for the swing arm too. And maybe I can knock that down to where now it's an hour to an hour and a half to finish a swing arm. And that would be that would be pretty huge to to just knock down the amount of time that it costs or takes me to do, you know, to to make a frame cuz or to miter a frame cuz that's only, you know, part of the equation. You obviously have also all the welding, all the powder coat, all the after powder coat prep and assembly. Um so you know, that number of three and a half hours to make a swing arm, well, that doesn't include also mitering the brake mount. Um, and, uh, that takes a little while as well because I decided to offer, you know, I was originally going to only make one brake mount and now I've given people the option to have either a 200 millimeter direct or a 203 millimeter direct. And, uh, that's something that I've learned over time is maybe I shouldn't have so many options, um, because it's little things like that, that can create, uh, they give you the potential to make a mistake. You know, I would be kicking myself if somebody asked for a two Oh three millimeter brake mount and I accidentally gave him a 200 mil, you know, cause now I've got a, well, they can run spacers, but <laughs> and now I've realistically should make their swing arm over again. You know, if that happens, um, So fingers crossed that hasn't happened and, you know, we haven't mixed up anything like that. Um, but yeah, that, I think going forwards, uh, you know, after I've, after I've got through the remaining frames and I need to rethink, um, or I have a chance to rethink of how I'm going to do things, I'm definitely going to look at creating tooling for sure. Um, creating, uh, possibly looking at like redesigning things a little bit where I can in order to make it easier to manufacture. And at the same time, I'm always going to not allow there to be a drop in performance or an increase uh, in weight. Like I'll always be looking at trying to improve things from a performance standpoint while making it easier to make as well. Um, and that's, I think that's a big part of what I enjoy about this is the actual like design and the, uh, having to use your brain to figure out, (laughs) you know, solutions to these problems. And, um, I think because I, I, I'm pretty new to this, it's, uh, there's a lot that I have to learn and, and there's huge amounts that I can improve on, you know? So, um, hopefully can get to the point where, you know, if somebody pulls the trigger on a frame, I could actually go into the shop and have all this tooling and be able to finish a, you know, finish mitering a frame in one day. That would be amazing. Um, and, uh, would definitely allow things to operate a bit, uh, more efficiently and smoothly if that
0: was the case. (laughs) No, it's tricky. You got to just kind of start refining things and learn what needs to be dialed in better. And iteratively kind of work up to it and on the subject of options for things you talked a bit earlier about designing the udh dropout to work with the new sram transmission but um, sort of something that maybe got lost a little bit when that launched is the degree of complexity that it adds for a high pivot bike in particular where you've also got the idler that needs to interface with the chain and the chain lines different from standard boost setup and the chain roller diameter is different and how much of a curveball was it to have to have some redesigned bits and options to accommodate that too
1: yeah that was something that i knew that there was going to be i mean we had heard we'd obviously seen uh you know, on like the world cup cross country, you'd see some teasers of uh prototype derailers. So we had an idea of like how it was going to mount and stuff, um, which made me, you know, really focus on making sure the dropout was compatible with what they, what they said. So I followed that to a T um, and, but when I actually got uh, the drivetrain, um, for the first time, which was like, I don't know, it was like a few days before it had launched. Um, they sent me drivetrain and I went and tried to just, you know, I, I had to figure out as much information as I could about it right then. And, uh, you know, first of all, you you learn that it's a 55 millimeter chain line instead of a 52. And my bike is a 52 millimeter chain line. And so you know the easy solution there. If if I just wanted to test it out, was to just space the idler pulley out using, you know, creating a different machined spacer to push it out wider, and then spacing out my upper chain guide, um, and that would have been an easy way to just test it. Uh, but then when I tried to check whether or not my chain or the new chain would fit on my idler, uh, it did not. And so that was a. I wasn't able to test or put install the drivetrain on the bike um, until I had revised or fixed those issues. And uh, basically, yeah, that was a that was a big bummer to not know that they were going to change the geometry, the actual physical geometry of the chain, because I had um, designed my idlers to work with the prior SRAM Eagle 12 speed and shimano um 12 speed and those those two are very well it'll even work with you know older 10 11 speed drivetrains if somebody wants to use that but basically they changed their the diameter of the rollers on the chain uh i think it was like a pretty large change like 0.2 of a millimeter diameter which doesn't which doesn't sound like much but that's a lot when you're talking uh, the tolerances of uh, a chain ring. So, you know, I had made my idler try to fit as as tightly as it could on the larger rollers of the Eagle, um, the older Eagle 12-speed chains, and then the smaller rollers from Shimano would also work with it. They just fit a little bit looser, but, I mean, we're talking like probably a difference of like 0.06 of a millimeter or something like that it's not it's not much of a difference between those two chains so yeah I had to figure out a solution and either it was like redesigning the whole thing or or creating new tooling to refixture that and a new tool path to modify some of the you know existing 70 idler pulleys that I had laying around Um, and those are you know made in USA quite expensive to make. So making ordering a whole bunch of new idlers with a new design was, was not really the solution. Um, so we ended up refixturing and, uh, creating a new tool path to basically go in and modify the existing idlers. And it took a, a few little tries, um, to dial in the tolerance on that. And then we were pretty good to go. And I think I ended up making like 15 or 20 of those idlers out of the 70 that I had, because there were a few customers that specifically wanted that. And then the other thing was getting, achieving the chain line to get a 55 millimeter chain line. You know, like I said, the easiest way would just to be just to put a, a thicker washer you know, three millimeter thicker washer. But I didn't like that as a solution because you're basically now creating a more, kind of a more flexy interface. And a lot of what I like about, or what I focused on on my bike was making the idler pulley uh, mount be really rigid. Um, Cause anytime there's flex there, you'll feel that in the drivetrain. Um, and it just won't feel as good. It won't work as good. So I ended up designing, uh, or we ended up making, I ended up designing and then we ended up making three millimeter thicker, uh, brackets. So basically now I have another part that I had to pay for, but it, it optimizes it for the customer that has a Eagle transmission set up or prefers a 55 mil chain line for whatever reason, um, so yeah, that was a bit of a curveball. That was increased costs and stress and and uh, to deal with. But I think the customers that have got Eagle Transmission are are stoked to be able to run it on the bike and not. You know, they also have the option if they want to go back. You know, it's just a couple parts. It's a different. I mean, theoretically, you could probably use a regular chain on the uh, Eagle transmission idler pulley it just wouldn't fit as tight and i i wouldn't it wouldn't work as good long term because of that and probably wouldn't retain the chain as well um but yeah you that's not something that i tested so that's why i wanted to make a an idler specific force
0: ram transmission and then an idler that's specific for all everything else yeah just added degree of complexity there that hadn't necessarily occurred to me right off the bat when transmission launched but uh yeah it's just and well i've been running xo transmission on the review bike working great so um you know got it all dialed in there and it's good but uh yeah just all these little things add up and it's tricky so i guess speaking of extra things you took on though let's talk a little bit about the beyond racing team and the world cup bikes so we had Anna and Abby on a little while back and they kind of told the story from their end of it, but would be curious for your version of it. How did that partnership come about and where did that whole thing start off?
1: I guess the origins of, of me sponsoring a a world cup team kind of just came from joking with my wife because she has a, she has a, um, her own sports bra company called loom six that she it's, it's, kind of been on the side. She used to work at Giro, but now she works actually at NHS, um, which does Santa Cruz skateboards and creature and all that stuff. So she's, but she's been doing apparel her whole life. And I was like, man, it would be cool to do like a Contra loom six team. That's all these like top women racers and they could be sponsored by you. And they could be, you know, they could also ride my bike. And so in my mind, that was something I was thinking about, like way down the line. Um, But for what, I don't know, for whatever reason, I decided, you know, hey, it would be really cool to make a downhill bike. And I had been, you know, following the World Cup for the last couple of years. And I was really impressed by what Anna and Abby were doing with their beyond racing team. I'm like, they're, you know obviously a step up from a privateer and that, I mean, they still are kind of privateers, but they're like a step up in that their professionalism Um they're making it to all the races. They're, they're uh, getting good results and, uh, creating a lot of good exposure around it. And, uh, I felt like, you know, they were doing all that on a bike that, I mean, I don't know, I don't have experience with the bike personally, but I knew it was just like a modified, enduro bike. And to me, it didn't look like the bike was helping them much, at least on rougher, gnarlier tracks. Um, And so I felt like there was a a huge amount for them to gain from from getting on a bike that is going to excel at rougher, steeper, faster tracks. And um, I hadn't yet made a downhill bike, but I always wanted to make one. So... Uh, for, yeah, I basically just ended up contacting them. I sent an email to them. Um, I think it was along the lines of like, oh yeah, I, you know, I would love to support you, you, you girls with bikes. And I think it would, you know, help. I basically would be able to provide you one of the best bikes on the circuit. At least that's what I said at the time. Cause you know, when you don't know, uh, but, but you have a belief then, uh, you know, I believed that I could make them a downhill bike that would help them, uh, perform at a higher level. So I didn't hear anything back for, I don't know, it was like a couple weeks. And I actually ended up reaching out to Elliot Jackson because he, um, supports them through Grow Cycling, which is like his, his, uh, organization. And, um, he's like, Oh yeah, they're just really busy. Like I'll let them know and they'll, they'll get back to you. They sound, they sound excited or something like that. And then finally they got back to me and, 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 uh, they were super into it, you know, and we didn't, I think they were working out details, uh, still with their existing sponsorships. Um, but they were really open to it. And, uh, a big reason why that I, why we were able to do that. Cause you know, I didn't have a ton of money laying around to be able to, to help them with their expenses for racing. Cause it's, it's really expensive to go to all the world cups and, and do it at a high level. Um, but I was like, Hey, my wife works at Giro and maybe we can like talk to them and get them to, to support the, comp- uh, support your team as well. Um, and so they were into that and I ended up kind of pitching the idea to, Um, at the time it was, uh, Dane Zafke and Jim Heaney at, at Giro. Um, and basically they were, um, super into it. Uh, I didn't know if anything was going to come of it, but, um, they were really into the idea. They were into the fact that they would be supported by, by myself, by Contra Bikes, which is, you know, in itself, I guess, uh, an interesting story, um, compared to most of the world cup teams, you know, they're all pretty much. Everybody is racing on major brands other than maybe Nico on his framework spike. Um, so, yeah, I didn't know if that was going to work out, but we set up a meeting for, for them. And uh, the meeting went well with Jiro. Jiro uh, was willing to support them, not only with product, but like with actual money to, <laughs> to get to the races. And I committed to making them six uh, frames in total and basically making them a downhill bike that I had not even designed yet. So that, uh, added a huge amount of, um, uh, I, I guess not, I, not necessarily stress cause I was excited to do it, but it was, it definitely added, um, to my workload um, cause this was in between trying to solve all those production issues and get production stuff up and running. And then at the same time, I'm trying to design a downhill bike. Um, and I ended up, uh, cause I didn't have a huge amount of money to put into it. I, I wasn't going to machine all new parts for a downhill bike. Um, so I, I figured out that I could. Just reconfigure all of the pivot locations, create a whole new front triangle and rear triangle jig, um, reposition everything and and basically achieve a 200 millimeter travel World Cup downhill bike with proper kinematics using the same linkages. So um, there were some other things that needed to change, like we needed to change to a a slightly smaller diameter, thicker wall down tube because I needed more clearance uh, between the lower link and the down tube, um, especially because they are not super tall riders. I think, uh, what are they, 5'5 five, five or 5'6? Five, so they needed a small um, downhill bike. And then on top of that, the, the stack height of their downhill fork is, is a lot higher, the SR Sun Tour, And so... I was designing the bike to work specifically with their sponsors, um, which, which made it even more difficult just because that axle, the crown, uh, on a small bike creates, uh, just difficulties to keep the stack height low enough and, and keep it structurally sound. So yeah, was working on all that in the background, um, ended up just getting them the prototype bikes, like just in time when they, when they, um, flew in from Europe. So they flew into, to, to San Francisco and then came to, came down to Santa Cruz. And we basically, they were here from, I think early March all the way through till sea otter. So they got a lot of testing in on the bikes. Um, uh, at first the bikes were raw cause I didn't have time to get them powder coated. I was just, everything was down to the wire. Um, and, the first ride that they did on him, it was like pouring rain and we're doing downhill shuttles laps on, trail, on a trail they'd never ridden. And within like two runs, they were like, this is like, we're really comfortable. Like it's like, I thought they were just like being nice and being like, oh yeah, I know the, you know, saying these things, but they were like, no, I've never really been this comfortable on a bike before, you know, like on, uh, like from the get go on a downhill bike. So for me, that was, that was great to see, you know, all the homework and research and work that I'd done to figure out a downhill bike for them was, was paying off at least uh, initially. Um, but we wouldn't know until they started, you know, racing and stuff. And, um, anybody that's followed the season, like they've had some pretty, uh, they've had some ups and downs, but, but, you know, they've had some great results as well. Like, um, Anna, even though she probably isn't, that happy with her season like she still had some of some of her best results ever like she just missed the podium at Leger by 0.02 of a second at at a world cup which is which is pretty nuts it's her best result so far and she was you know 10th at world champs um Abby was coming back from injury so you know it was definitely um it's definitely hard anytime you're coming back from injury. But with that said, she still went out there and, and was ripping on the bike and she ended up getting, uh, I think it was like second or third in, in dual slalom on a downhill bike at national champs, um, which was pretty nuts. Um, and, uh, you know, they just had like a really good season for jumping on a bike that didn't even exist before, you know, when they pulled the trigger. So, I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that I can continue to work with them. Uh, I don't think we have anything finalized yet, but if we do, I've got some ideas of how to take the bike to another level for them, um, based on the feedback from, from them and from what I can see watching them race world cups and stuff. Um, we went out to Mont-Saint-Anne actually just recently and watched, uh, watched the race and, and that was really cool because I haven't been to a World Cup for like 13 years, so that was uh, a <laughs> quite a. Uh, it wasn't a shock to see the level, but it was it was like, okay, yeah, the level's like way higher than when I was racing on 26 inch wheels, um, and uh, yeah, just knowing now what what they put the bikes through is is crazy, and I definitely want to apply like some of what I've learned from that into the. You know the enduro bike going forwards for sure so
0: (laughs) yeah it's been pretty cool seeing the bikes on the world cup and having some good results like you said um gotta be just feel pretty cool to have pulled that off and well since you've teased it up a little bit there anything you want to share about what's kicking around in your head as far as things that you could refine going forward yeah uh
1: well there's obviously the <laughs> as far as refining things like i'm always gonna i think with the mc the enduro bike um i want to look at ways that i can uh improve the stiffness um without adding a bunch of weight or even you know possibly reducing weight and and increasing the stiffness. Um, It's just something that I, uh, you know, the bike rides really good the way that it is, especially through, like, or at least in my opinion, through, like, chunky, messed up sections sections of trail. The bike tracks really well. But uh, I will say if, like, you were going to go to a bike park and you're going to, like, I don't know, shrub some berm super hard, you might want a little bit stiffer bike. So I want to be able to play around with that in the future. And the best way to do that is to increase the, the chainstay diameter slightly, um, to bump it up from a three quarter inch diameter tubing, um, tube to a seven eighths diameter tube. And in order to do that, there's going to have to be some changes to create the clearances that I need. I would also have to create a new, uh, new tooling for my tubing bender, um, beyond that I really would like to get a custom down tube made. Um, the down tube that I'm using right now is a straight wall. Um, so there's a lot of weight that could be saved there, but we could also like increase the strength by going much thicker at the head tube in the bottom bracket with the tubing and then possibly, you know, having it already have the bend integrated into it. So that's one less thing to do. And then doing some, you know, ideally I would probably talk with either Reynolds or, um, velo spec, which is part of fairing, um, and see about getting a, like a higher grade of steel because chromoly is great for, uh, for its use. And especially like the failure mode of chromoly, it's got a lot of elongation. So like, if you have some mega wreck or, and your bike goes cartwheeling and like hits a tree at like 50 miles an hour, some, you know, not 50, but some ridiculous amount of force goes into it you'll maybe see it, um, instead of it just catastrophically exploding. Um, and ideally, you know, that's the way that you want it to fail is, is not catastrophically. You want it to, to bend, uh, you want it to stay as one piece. Um, so yeah, looking at optimizing, um, some things in the future to try to reduce weight, to try to increase, um, stiffness where I can, um, I also would try to look at if there was a way that I could redesign things to possibly eliminate some of the machine parts um, while still maintaining um, the uh, aesthetic of the bike and the performance of the bike. Um, Yeah, I don't know. There's just lots of things to look into. Um, I would also like to make a short travel bike in the future. I don't know exactly what that would be. I've been playing around with some suspension uh, kinematics uh on on the computer and coming up with a couple different ways of going. But that's just something that I, I think I'd like to make in the future um so that I have something to ride on uh, more mellow trails. Not that I want to ride more mellow trails, but it's just that's a lot of what we have around here is, you know, smoother stuff where like you could theoretically get by on a short travel bike and maybe it would be a little bit more exciting. Um, you'd be able to put a little more energy into the trail. Uh, the current bike to me, to me, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a downhill bike that you can climb. Uh, you know, I had a trip recently to Retallic, uh, up in Canada and the trails are amazing there. I, you know, did all this tons of downhill riding on the bike and was chasing people that were on, Sol Supreme V fives and, you know, Santa Cruz V tens and stuff. And it's not really that far out of its element riding with people on full on downhill bikes. You know, I'd say the biggest thing holding it back was the fork. Um, so, uh, I feel like that bike could, could even, I could even, I would like to experiment with possibly making it even more downhill oriented not necessarily weight wise but like maybe we look at uh experimenting with uh, it's a little bit different kinematics um experimenting with longer travel forks possibly a triple clamp fork or you know designing it to work with maybe a 180 single crown or either either way i i'm not sure yet it's kind of something that i would like to experiment with when i have a little bit more time um is just seeing if we can, you know, I think the bike is already really good in the rough, but, but, you know, seeing if we can take it even further without um, giving up much of its climbing ability. Uh, you know, that's, that's not something that I, that I want to do is, <laughs> is create something that's only good at going down. You know, the downhill bike is a whole nother thing. That's something that I've kind of off the menu have, it's a kind of an off the menu item that, Um, there's a few people that have actually ordered the downhill bike and I'm going to make them for them. Um, and, uh, I am, I'm also doing some customizations to the bike, even though it's not listed on the website. So, um, I'm doing a plus or minus 10 millimeters of reach. Um, but again, these are things that like, it's, it's cool that I can do that. And I think it helps, um, for some people to, you know, that are maybe in between sizing or, um, like I just actually got contacted by a guy that's, that's, that's really, um, tall. He's like six foot seven. And he, I think he was like a college linebacker. So he's a good 270 pound guy. And I guess he's breaking bikes left and right. Like I won't say which bikes, but (laughs) major brands bikes, he's breaking them like very fast. So, um, the fact that I can, you know, I can talk to that guy, I can figure out what he has been riding, what he likes geometry wise, um, how he's riding the bike. And then we can actually do some customizations for him, you know, some thicker tubing and areas where it's needed. Um, we can do, you know, for him, he, he probably needs a reach that I can't Uh, currently do with my jig so i'll probably create some additional tooling for him you know he wants something in the range of like 540 millimeters or each um you know just i think part of what's making the things keep going is people like the idea that they can actually they can do some customizations um and most likely, you know, when they get this bike, they're probably not going to see too many other people or anybody necessarily riding one of these bikes. They might be the only one on it, um, which is kind of cool. in like a sea of specialized in Santa Cruz and Yetis out there, It's it's cool to see a bike that I mean, theoretically, it costs less than a Yeti, you know, and I don't think
0: those are made here. So <laughs> it is definitely the bike that i have been on recently that has garnered the most attention just at the trailhead and stuff people are drawn to it and have a lot of questions and um definitely attracting a lot of interest which has been cool and um i think i'm kind of i'm pretty much in agreement with you on what you sort of described as far as ride characteristics stuff too it's we've talked a bit about just a bit on here already but it's really incredibly composed just going fast in rough stuff the suspension performance is excellent and the ride feel is really good and it's kind of an interesting comparison to the trek slash that i've got in for review right now too because they're not entirely the same but not too far off from each other in terms of both geometry and suspension kinematics uh but feel pretty different and i think the differences in frame stiffness are a very real part of that the track is definitely stiffer overall uh and does feel a little bit more precise when you're really just loading it up at a big berm corner or something but also feels a little more chattery and transmits a bit more feedback when you're just plowing it through something rough and you know pros and cons to both of those but it uh feels pretty different from a lot of stuff i've been on and Really good, and I'm I'm getting along with it really well. Cool, I'm stoked to hear that. Yeah, it's it's taken a lot.
1: It <laughs> it took a lot to get you a frame. I know we were talking about it for a long time, and uh, I guess just to go go back to how you ended up getting your frame because because people probably don't know is uh, so the first f- I, ha- I kind of have to tell this because I had this in my mind that I was going to tell people this. Um, Going back to the powder coating thing and the paint finishing, figuring that out, that's been massive, massive headache for me. And part of that headache was because, you know, basically the first five frames that I made that were for customers, only one of those got to go to the actual customer right right after it was finished being powder coated. And that's because there were just crazy issues. Basically, I was testing out a different powder coat place and uh I dropped off two frames, one of which was a custom one-off geometry frame uh for a guy up in Canada and the other one was for a guy in Finland. And somehow, even though it's two frames, they're different sizes, they have different features, and we we took pictures and were very clear with you know which bike was which, they ended up mixing up the colors on these two frames. Uh and then also damaging one of the frames by sanding it too heavily in one area. So that was, that was a, a huge bummer. Um, and then additionally, on top of that, we had uh, a bike get powder coated and I was going to assemble it and I found imperfections where it had, it was basically down to bare metal in one spot from uh, contamination that was under the powder coat when they were curing it. So then there was another frame that was messed up and, and they tried fixing it and, the fix was to add more powder coat and um, we'll stand it down and add more powder coat. And I just wasn't happy with how that finish was going. And so, uh, instead of getting it all stripped down and do it all over again. Um, cause there's not anybody here locally that's, that's good at doing that. Um, we just ended up sending it to you to, to review. So you've got this weird, probably an extra, you know, quarter pound heavier bike because it's got a bunch of extra powder coat, but, um, it's going to serve its purpose as a, a, a demo bike in the future. Uh, there's a lot of people that ride extra larges and, um, it'll be cool to finally have one of those for people to ride. But yeah, and then there was a whole nother, I don't even have to get into it. There's another bike that I made that was a replacement for one of those damaged bikes or, you know, painted incorrectly bikes. And that also got screwed up in powder coat. So definitely, yeah, one of my biggest Bits of advice to people trying to start a bike company besides, you know, figuring everything out ahead of time is, is figure out your paint and powder coat. Cause that's a, a very difficult thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's been an adventure, but, uh, worked out okay over here. I'm pretty stoked to have gotten on it now. And like I said, really genuinely quite impressed. So it's been going well. Yeah, man, I'm definitely stoked to, to have you on it. I'm looking forward to seeing that review when it comes out. Yeah. Be coming up in a bit here, but, uh, Well, probably about time I let you get back to it, Evan, but this has been a lot of fun and just a really good insight into kind of all the little details that it takes to get a project like this off the ground, and appreciate you sharing it all. It's been fun.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, we'll have to ride again sometime this winter. Maybe I'll have a V2 or something for you to ride. (laughs) I don't know if it'll be that
0: fast, but... (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that might be a little ambitious there, but... uh, (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great to get out again. It's been a while, and looking forward to making that happen when we can. Sweet. All right, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas, and as always, we would very much appreciate you leaving us a rating or review in your podcast player of choice to help keep the show going and growing. I'd also like to say thanks to Evan for the conversation, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing the episode, and thanks to you for listening. From all of us at Blister, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we'll be back again next week. Bye, everybody.